0: We began um, some studies in the book of Micah, and so if you'll turn with me there in your copy of the scriptures to, once again, Micah chapter 1. Micah is one of the minor prophets there toward the end of the Old Testament. Our study is going to focus this morning on verses 8 through 16, but just to remind us a little bit of the context, we're going to back up to verse 6 and start our reading there. So Micah chapter 1 and verse 6. Listen to God's word. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard, I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Therefore, I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth-Aphra, roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shaphir. The inhabitant of Zanon does not go out, Beth Ezel mourns, its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Marot pine for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harnish the chariot to the swift steeds, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion." For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you shall give presents to at Gath. The houses of Ochzeb shall be allied to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Moreshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. There's an old song, and the chorus goes like this. Keep on the sunny side. Always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If you keep on the sunny side of life, if you know that song, please don't hum it uh, aloud uh, for the rest of us. Keep on the sunny side. Uh, Good advice if you can manage to keep it. Um, Sadly, though, most of life doesn't allow us to keep on the sunny side. I think if you would ask Micah if he were feeling like he were walking on the sunny side uh, in the midst of most of his life, he would have to say, "No, no, I am not." And, and after reading the passage that that we just read here at the end of chapter one, it's easy to see why he would say that. Um, it's hard to keep on the sunny side when. Uh, life is full of hardship and and difficulty, and and Micah was living in a day that was full of both. Um, he was uh, surrounded by disaster. Disaster had come already. It had come to the north. The people of Samaria and disaster was coming, now he prophesied to the people of the south, to to Judah. So the first tidal wave had already crashed down upon God's people. And as he looked out on the horizon, he prophesied that there was another tidal wave on its way. And so we have this passage uh, I I entitled in the bulletin, what to do uh, with disaster. Maybe we could be a little more specific though uh, than that and say, what do we do when God chastens his people? Because that's really what we have here. It is disaster, but it's, it's a disaster that's focused upon the people of God, isn't it? It's a, it's a disaster that has a purpose. It has a chastening purpose, a, a purpose to discipline his people. So, so when God disciplines you, when God disciplines me, what ought our response to be? And that's what Micah is wanting to get at for us. That's what he was trying to get at for the people that he was writing to, not that they would simply hear the prophecy of this coming uh, judgment and simply sit back and do nothing. He expected there to be a response. He expects there to be a response from us when we're chastened. And so uh, top line summary, uh, let me give that to you uh, for the message today. Uh, receive the Lord's chastening with humility Loyalty and faith. Receive the Lord's chastening with humility, loyalty, and faith. And those are going to be our three points. Receive Lord's chastening with humility, receive it with loyalty, receive it with faith. And, and our first point is going to be the one we spend the most time on uh, because it really is the main idea um, for this passage. This idea that, that when God brings discipline into my life and yours, He means for us to be humbled under that particular discipline. And I want to talk uh, about, three, uh, about three things, about three helpful uh, things that we can remember as we think about this discipline. Three things that come out of our text here um, that help kind of divide this up into, into some bite-sized Chunks. And so, so point one, um, endure the chastening of the Lord with, with humility. And now, three statements that we can make that help us as we are under those times of God's chastening. And the first is this My sin is a problem that I can't fix, but thank God He can. So sin is, is a problem that I cannot manage myself, that I cannot fix on my own. And, and as we turn to the passage, we, we see that that's really where Micah starts. He's, he's in mourning, isn't he? Verse 8. He's wailing and howling. He's in mourning. And, and he tells us why in verse 9. He tells us that um, the sin of the north has come to infect The people of the south—that that that this uh, judgment that Samaria received in the north is 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 quickly coming upon his people, the people of Judah, the people of the south, and that the judgment is coming south because God's people uh, have have received this um, uh, sin pattern from the north, and of course they have it in their own hearts. But he says her wounds are incurable. And four, it has come to Judah. Someone has said that, that sin is the most infectious plague in the whole world. recent years, we know something about infectious diseases, don't we? That you can do everything in your power. Some of us did everything in our power to avoid being infected with COVID, and yet three years in, um, I would be surprised if there was anyone here who hadn't been infected at least once. Sin's even worse. Sin's even more infectious. It's very nature is to spread and, and to grow. It's, it's like that piece of cheese in the back of your refrigerator with the mold on it. You can expect that if you don't do anything to that cheese, it's going to keep getting more and more moldy until the mold takes over the whole block. That's how sin works, too. It spreads. And on top of it being super infectious, it's also incurable. And this is what he's grieving over. Her wounds are incurable. We live in a wonderful age, don't we, where we're constantly hearing about cures for one disease or another, or a new treatment that, that helps with, with some disease that, that previously we just had no answer to. But one thing we're never going to hear as long as we live is we have found a cure for sin. We have found a cure. Man has discovered a cure for sin. But that's exactly what Christ has come to do. Christ has come, and and thank the Lord today that He has the power to change our lives. He has the power in Himself to conquer our sin, to break its power in our life, to, to break its stranglehold uh, on us and 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 Micah mourns as he looks at his own heart and he and he mourns as he looks at the hearts of his people around him but he can look up can't he he can look up and give thanks that God has uh, provided or that he would provide a way for salvation and so sin needs a radical solution that none of us has um, you've you've heard that old line, um, God helps those who help themselves. Well, here is a place where that is no encouragement to you and me whatsoever, because we can't help ourselves at all with this sin problem. But thank God, He can. My sin's a problem that I can't fix, but thank God, He can. But then, there's a second thing, a second statement we can make to help us. Uh, think about humility under God's chastening and it's this this chastening is expertly suited to me expertly suited to me and, and that gets us in, into the heart of the passage, the biggest uh, part uh, of this passage, uh, and the most confusing part of the passage, too, especially for us English speakers. So, so we're at a real disadvantage here in these verses, and I'm thinking about verses 10 through 15, where we have all of these towns named, and, and, and by the way, all of these towns are in western Judah, Um, All of these towns are located near to Micah's hometown of Moresheth. In fact, Moresheth is mentioned in verse 14. And and so uh, all of these towns were going to, in the year 701, when the Assyrians invade, they're going to invade from the west because they've already been tearing up Philistia. And so now they're going to turn toward Jerusalem and they're going to march across Western Judah, the hill country there that Micah grew up in, and we can begin to see why God called Micah particularly to be a prophet for this for this particular time, because this was going to impact his hometown. It was going to impact towns from his old um, stomping ground, and and so he names all of these towns that were all very close to Morashet, and. If you had lived in Jerusalem in 701, you, you might have stood upon the, the walls of the city and looked west. And as you looked west and, and, and knew that the Assyrians were coming toward your city, there in the distance, these little villages and towns, one by one, the lights would flicker out of these little towns, and in their place would be a great column of smoke as they were burned to the ground. And so, what's, um, what's the purpose of these verses? Well, there's, there's a bunch of play, play on word situations here with these. Uh, and so, if you, if you really have a thing for Hebrew puns, you've come to the right place this morning. You're going to love this. Um, uh, we, we miss out because we don't know what these Hebrew town names mean, um, but but each comment that he makes about the town is, is a play on words based on the meaning of the town's name or maybe what the town's name sounds like. So to give you uh, an American example or two, um, something like um, Pittsburgh is the pits. Or um, to bring it closer to home, Indianapolis is... Uh, no place to uh, drive around at night, something like that. Of course, we love Indianapolis, but, but some kind of negative uh, connotation there based on the name. And, and so uh, just to, to, to go through these uh, quickly, uh, beth Afra means um, house of dust. And so he says, house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. In other words, there's, there's mourning coming your way. Shafir means something like um, Beautyburg, Beauty town. And, and there's going to be some ugly naked for her. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Beautyburg. Zanon means um, Marchville. Uh, Marchville, you're not going to march out, you're going to be too afraid. March out. You're known for marching out and boldness, but you're going to be hiding behind your city walls when the Assyrians come. Bethesel means house of snatching or house of taking away, and, and its place to stand is going to be snatched away from it. Marot, verse 12. Bittersburg. I don't know why they name their towns like this. Um, Bittersburg. um, You pined for something good or something sweet. But no, disaster instead is coming from the Lord. Now, Lakish is a little bit different. Lakish gets special attention, it gets a whole verse to itself. and and there's really not a play on words with Lachish. Lachish was the biggest town in in the west of Judah. Um, Solomon had set it up as a so-called chariot city, which means there was a large contingent uh, of the army that was stationed there. A number of chariots and and horsemen were there. Um, This was Israel's western fortress city. This was um, their their um, strongest stronghold in the West. And, and we know um, from history that Lachish falls to Sennacherib and, and the Assyrians, despite the fact that it had double walls and that the one wall was 19 feet thick and the second wall was 13 feet thick despite the fact they had all of these chariots and and, and horsemen. And in fact, what he says basically about Lachish is um, your chariots, instead of harnessing them to war horses, you're going to harness your chariots to race horses so you can get away as fast as you can. And, and, And if you were to go to the British Museum today, you would be able to see Sennacherib's Um, wall relief um, that's been discovered and and now placed in exhibit. It was 70 feet long, and it celebrated Sennacherib's victory over this city. And there's something about Lachish. Um, We don't know exactly what the sin is, but they introduce some sin... To the people of God in the South. And we don't know if it was a religious sin, if it was idolatry uh, of a gross sort, or whether it was maybe just trust in their military might. We don't know exactly what it was, but but they're remembered for having led God's people astray. Woe to us. Woe to us if we would fall into that same category to, to lead others into greater sin. And so Lachish is singled out. And then we go on in in verse 14. Now, Morishet, Gath, and and we find out that that, uh, this is uh, Micah's uh, hometown. This is uh, very close to Gath in Philistia. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Morishet means something like bride town, and and, uh, we're being told, you're going to give a sort of dowry. You're going to give a a bride price. Um, You're going to pay dearly to the Assyrians when they arrive. And then, uh, uh, ogzib means something like deceptionville. And uh, deceptionville, you're going to be deceived horribly. And Moracia means victory, victoryville. And probably better than air would be a word like conqueror. I will yet bring the conqueror to you. Oh victoryville you won't have victory but one another will conquer you Now if you're asking the question why does Micah tell us this information in this particular way you're asking the right question So let's let's first of all eliminate why he's not doing this he's not doing this to show off his literary skills He's not doing this to Trivialize, to make light of this issue. What he is doing is he's showing how suitable, how fitting um, the punishment will be to their sin. He's showing that these little towns, and some of them were uh, little towns, these little villages, they will not be able to hide in the day of God's judgment. And the same is true for us. There's no hiding from God. And, and then secondly, that the sins that they've committed uh, are, are going to find them out in very specific ways. And, and that the punishment is truly going to fit the crime. And, and to look at it from uh, the point of view of believers being chastened, of course, that's true for everyone. We, we all receive, uh, you know, all, all men, apart from Christ, receive what they deserve. But to think about this in terms of the chastening of the Lord, I was helped by uh, a comment by Thomas Case. He says, uh, affliction is God's forge to soften the iron heart. So he's thinking about a blacksmith here, right? And, and the blacksmith heats up the metal to soften it, and, and then he begins to go to work on it. And, and the blacksmith, uh, uh, maybe some of you have watched a blacksmith at work. I've been able to do that a time or two for a few minutes. And the blacksmith has many tools. He has, he has different hammers. And he has different tools that he uses depending on the metal that he's working on and depending on what he's wanting to do with that metal. And so to look at this in in terms of of God's chastening upon his people, we're being told here that, that the Lord will use the particular kind of chastening that you need and that I need in order to bring about the desired result which is, of course, holiness. And that the tools He uses in your life will in some ways be different than the tools He uses in my life. And that has to do with the fact that He knows you and He knows me individually. And He knows what pressures to bring to bear to get us where we need to be. And this is why sometimes, you know, we're in the midst of some kind of, of trial, and we think, man, you know, if it were something else, I wouldn't mind it so much. And that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> that's the point. Yeah, if it were something else, it wouldn't bother us so much. It wouldn't hurt us so deeply. But the things He does use in our lives... He uses them for particular reasons. And so this chastening, it's, it's the master craftsman, the master blacksmith is at work here in your life and my life. And this is a great encouragement to us, isn't it? And so Micah says, even as the Assyrians are just rampaging across the countryside, even if it seems as if God has left the building and that, that, that chaos is in control and the Assyrians are doing whatever uh, they please to do among the people of God, that's not the case at all. The Lord is, is using this very specifically to bring about His desired results. And so this chastening is expertly suited for you and, and me. That's the second statement about our humility. And then the, the third statement to wrap, wrap up this section. The goal of this chastening is my restoration. That builds, of course, on what we've already said. But the goal of this chastening is my restoration. I want you to notice the, the book ends of this passage. Look at verse 8, and you see Micah... Mourning, and Micah wants us to mourn as he's mourning. And so you look at verse sixteen, and he says, "Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity." Uh, He wants those hard hearts broken. He's grieving, and he says, there ought to be grieving on our parts, too. There ought to be repentance on our part, too. And, and so, so far, so far, their hearts had, had been stony. Um, so far, they had shrugged off all of God's warnings, and he had sent multiple prophets. One of you met me at the back door and said, um, Isaiah, wasn't he ministering at the same time as Micah? Yes, Micah, that big book of his, he has a long ministry, Isaiah has a long ministry that overlaps Micah's. And even before that, God had sent other prophets, hadn't he? And, And after this, he'll send more. And the, pro- the, the purpose is, is that our hearts would be softened, that we would hear God's word, and that finally that, that, that we would receive them, that, that, um, that the warnings would be heeded. And, and isn't God so merciful? Isn't God so merciful to keep coming to us and to keep warning us and, and to keep working with us? But there's this. The longer our hearts are hard the more deeply he has to to cut. And notice what he pinpoints in verse 16. He says, He says, Will it take me snatching your children from you? Will it take me touching that in your life? to bring you to repentance. Some of us know that it does take that. And so, the Lord goes to any length necessary, every length necessary, to restore us. To restore us, to soften our hearts, to loosen our stiff necks, and to help us to hear. Joseph Elaine says that sin is our fatal misery, but that by God's grace, he cures us by turning our hearts from idols and to the living God. The good news for you and me is that God doesn't give us one more blow. He doesn't land one more blow upon us than is absolutely necessary. He takes no delight in our suffering. And so the blows that you and I receive, there's not one more added to that number than just what is essential to accomplish God's good purposes in our life. And so for these reasons, we can, we can receive the Lord's chastening with humility. But then there are a couple of other minor notes here that we ought to take note of. And so, second of all, we ought to receive God's chastening with loyalty, with loyalty or, or um, with a, a devotion to Him. Uh, you notice I, I skipped over the beginning of verse 10, and I did because it's different. There's a lot of weeping in this passage. It begins and ends with weeping, and there's weeping in the middle. There's all this loss and disappointment and, and upheaval and frustration that's, that's being prophesied. But there's one place, he says, where you shouldn't be weeping. He says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Now, maybe some of you who have read your Bibles through a lot, you may recognize this line, tell it not in Gath, is coming from another place in Scripture, coming from an earlier point in history. You might remember King Saul, the first king of Israel, and and that King Saul um, died at the hands of the Philistines. And who came to the throne after Saul? Well, King David did, didn't he? David came to the throne, and the first thing he does is to, to write a song that honors King Saul. He honors King Saul, even though Saul had been pretty terrible <laughs> to him. And, and, and the full verse is, is this from first from Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel um, chapter 1. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Tell it not in Gath. Of course, Gath was a city of the Philistines. And here is, this, um, here is Micah expressing this zeal for the Lord's name and, and for the Lord's cause. Obviously, this is a time of, 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 of great suffering for the people of, of God. Uh, and it's not as, as if the Philistines won't hear about it. This isn't to be taken too literally, I don't think. Of course, the Philistines are going to know. But the point is, we care about the cause of God too much to to broadcast the the ugliness and and the the awfulness of what's transpiring. There's a, a mourning that ought to go on among God's people for these things, but it's not to be broadcast. Tell it not in 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 Gath. And and of course what's interesting here about Micah is that he grew up in the very shadow of Gath. His hometown was called Morishet Gath. And probably that just tells us that it was located very near to Gath. Gath was a major city of the Philistines. And so here is Morashet, this little town, and it was close, it was a frontier town. Uh, Moresheth was an Israelite town, and and Gath was a Philistine city. And and so Micah grows up in the very shadow of the enemy, the very shadow of Gath. But as far as he's concerned, they are different worlds. You might say he's in the world, but not of the world. Now, Now, those who don't know any better might say, well, He's so close to the border, doesn't that make him a little bit suspect? Maybe a little Philistine thinking has bled over the border into yet. Maybe he's not the best one to deliver this message. Maybe he's infected with, with Philistinism. But border dwellers, no different. Border dwellers are the most patriotic for their country or state. Uh, of any. I say that as one who grew up in Clover, South Carolina, which is about five miles from North Carolina. And occasionally someone would have the audacity to say, oh, you're basically a North Carolinian. And I would say, no, we're the first lines of defense. (laughs) We live close enough to North Carolina to, to know how thankful we are to be South Carolinians. That's how border dwellers tend to be. And, and probably there was something of that in Morishad, except this is a spiritual thing. Don't tell it in, in Gath. There's, there's a zeal here. There's a love for the Lord and, and, and his cause here. Um, Micah knows what's at stake better than anybody. He had seen Philistine life and thinking. He had seen godless living up close. He knew what was at stake. He knew the contempt for god 's way he knew the scoffing and the scorn, and for him it 's not simply a patriotic thing, a, a nationalistic thing it 's a spiritual matter. How about us i, I wonder I wonder if we 've lost something of this, something of this zeal for the lord 's cause that makes us very careful. And again, I don't know if we can set down any hard and fast rules, but it's more of of an outlook. It's more of a of a, a consciousness of of how it is that we mourn. For instance, the things in the church that go sideways. Are we eager to broadcast the troubles of the church into the world, to tell our unbelieving friends all of the awful stuff that's that's happening? It just doesn't seem to fit, does it? It doesn't seem to fit with what we hear from David, what we hear from Micah. Don't tell it in Gath. It's a loyalty here that we're called to. And even as the Lord is striking us, even as the Lord is disciplining us, to remember He is my God. This God is my God. This God is my God. This Christ is. Is my Savior and Lord. There's a loyalty there. But then, one more thing. Receive the Lord's chastening with humility, receive it with loyalty, receive it with faith. Receive it with faith. Now, there's one other line that that we didn't say anything about the first time through. It's the second half of verse 15. Again, something a little different. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam. And here's another reference to something that happened years before. Here's another reference to the life of David. Remember, before he was king, where he did a lot of hiding was in the caves of Adullam. And now Micah is saying there's going to be this period of time where the glory of Israel is in eclipse. The glory of Israel is going to be hidden. It's going to be in a These are going to be a days for the people of God, if I can say it that way. These are going to be days in which the glory is in eclipse, where you're going to look around at the visible church, and there isn't going to be very much to see. There isn't going to be very much that thrills your soul. Not very much to encourage you. And it's a small encouragement, uh, but for the, for, for the faithful, it's a, a real encouragement, because you think back to David, and you think back to his days in the caves of Adullam, and did those days last forever? Did he die in the caves of Adullam? No, he didn't. He was, he was raised up to the throne, wasn't he? He was raised up to glory. His glory became public and, and became revealed. And I think Micah is telling us just that. It's not going to be forever. By this little reference to Adullam, he's saying, it won't be so forever. It won't be so forever. How about you and me in our present day? Well, the glory of Israel has come. Christ has come. The Savior has come. And it's the joy of our lives. It's the most important thing to us, isn't it? And yet the New Testament has us waiting. The New Testament has us rejoicing in this great gospel and and finding great peace and and rejoicing in it. And yet there's this also now and not yet. There's this period of time, these adullam days in our own time where the glory doesn't seem to be shining all that brightly in the visible church. And I think Peter hits on that, and that's why I had us read um, the Apostle Peter's first chapter in his first epistle. One of the most thrilling descriptions of the blessings of the gospel in the whole Bible. It's one of my favorite passages, especially the first half of chapter one. Wonderful description of, of, of what we have in Christ. But along the way, In verse 6, and then again in verse 8, Peter just interjects a little bit of, well, it's just reality. He says, though now, you suffer, if need be, various trials. And then again in verse 8, he uses the word again. But now... You don't see Him. You love Jesus, but He's not yet visible to you. You don't yet see Him. And because of that, in a sense, the glory is still hidden. We live in a dullum days. We await the return of Christ. We await the full glory of His coming back. But in the meantime, there's that but now, but now, various trials. But now, you don't see Him, which... You still love him, but there's a, a distance and, and there's a difficulty because we're, we're having to walk by faith and, and not by sight. And, and so Peter is giving us uh, this helpful reminder, but then he helps us, he, he kind of ties it up and, and helps us to understand, gives us a filter, you might say, for understanding our present situation. He says it's just like actually the, the, the experience of Jesus. Because he goes on to say later in that passage, and you read it, there are the sufferings of Christ now and the what? The glories to come. He experienced the sufferings and then the glories. And we're just walking in the steps of Jesus, aren't we? For now there are sufferings And there are glories to come. For now, Adullam days, the glory is hidden, but not forever, not forever. Great David's greater son will be revealed. And so that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? That enables us to keep going, knowing that there's an end to it, that God's in control of it. This chastening that we experience by God's grace, by the work of Christ in our life. He says, this is the way I walked, and you're walking in it now. Chastening, suffering now, loyalty to the Lord in the midst of it, walking by faith. Knowing that the glory is yet to come. So we rejoice in that today. We rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please stand? We'll pray together. Father, we want to acknowledge you as good, as always good to acknowledge you as good on the days that are most difficult when there doesn't seem to be any sunshine in sight, that all is hard, all is dark. We thank you that you are good even then. Father, we thank you that the chastening we receive is, is for our good always. And that enables us to receive it with humility, knowing that what you're doing is you're simply... A rooting a sin out of our lives so that we might cling to Christ more closely. Father, help us to believe that and to trust you, to trust your master handiwork in our lives. Lord, help us to, to, to cling close to Jesus, to love him so much that it is his glory that we desire in our lives. And Lord, help us, strengthen us day by day in the walk of faith. We thank you that the walk of faith will one day turn to sight. We thank you that the glory of Jesus will be fully revealed one day. And we pray in the meantime that you would give us grace to walk with you well day by day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 107.